Um, Noed, we ready? I've already been told I look like a giant salmon egg. So uh, that's my strategy. I don't even have to fish. I just stand on the bank and the trout see this shirt and jump right out. It's good to be here with you this morning. We're going to open in the book of Genesis, in chapter 25. And we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob, as I mentioned to those who were here last night. I'll read from Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19. Genesis 25 verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore his name was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's a little bit harder for me to assign homework in one sense than it was for Jamie. There's certain portions that he gave you that would be relatively short. My portions would be a bit longer, and you'd have to read basically the rest of the book of Genesis from this point forward, which you're more than welcome to do and wouldn't take you that much time. I've given up uh, over the years making assumptions. Uh, I used to say, I know this is a familiar passage to you, but I find we can't say that anymore. 
But I want to suggest that if this portion of the Word of God is not familiar to you, it's one that you might want to give yourself to reading sometime. The book of Genesis as a whole and the study of the patriarchs and uh, their lives uh, in some perhaps better detail. But there is one verse that you might remember that will resound sort of through this series this week, and it's found in various places in the Word of God. We looked at one briefly last night, but there is one in Psalm 46.7. I'm not going to turn to it because it's just a phrase that's found in that verse, and you can find it elsewhere, and it's the phrase, the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. And we'll see why that's significant, trusting the Lord to show us as we move along during the week. But the God of Jacob. Remember that with Jacob, eventually his name is going to be changed to Israel. And as Jamie reminded us last night, the name Jacob, at least in its meaning, is not a very flattering name. I'm not sure if you caught it last night, but the English equivalent of that is James, or Jamie to be sort of, you know, I don't know whether he did that to evade the James or try to not, you know, but but James, that would be the English equivalent. And Jacob's name meant basically, as we find in the text, a supplanter, or one who trips somebody up, or one who ultimately tricks people. And in many ways, Jacob was a schemer. He was a con man. He always had a scheme. He always had a plan. And we'll see that as we move through these portions of Scripture. And it's a marvelous story of how God would take that man and not abandon him, but deal with him and eventually bring him to the place that he wanted him to be where his name would be called Israel. And I'm going to suggest to you that the rest of your Bible in the book of Genesis from this point to chapter 50 is the story primarily of Jacob. Now, if you know this section of Scripture, you might you might protest that. And by the way, if anybody has anything that they want to comment with me later or talk to me about or question or I said something that's wrong, please, I often say, love me enough to point it out to me. And we'll look at the Word of God together and see what it has to say. But you know in the book of Genesis, approximately one-fourth of the book is taken up with the life of Joseph. Which is interesting, as someone has said, about a fourth of the book of Genesis taken up with the life of Joseph, who's not in the line of Christ, but he's in the likeness of Christ. And yet I want to suggest to you, is it really about the story of Joseph, or is it eventually about the story, or really about the story of how God brings Jacob to the place where he wants him to be, and Joseph in that sense is a major role player. And if you don't take that particular thought as I do, consider this. That the rest of your Old Testament is not so much, the entire Old Testament is not so much the history of mankind. It is the history of Jacob, or 
as he has come to be known, the history of Israel. And so after you get to Genesis chapter 12, things will rapidly move towards the formation of that nation that would bear his name, Israel. And the rest of your Old Testament is not so much a history of the nations as it is the nation that would be formed from him and called after his name, Israel. And so what we'll find in the study of of Jacob's life is a personal history about the man. It would be unavoidable to to not see. As As we look at it, we'll see the personal history of the man, Jacob. We'll see also the national history portrayed through the life of Jacob. A vignette, a a small view, if you will, of the whole of the nation's history as recorded in the historical events of the life of the man, Jacob. So it will be a personal history, and it will be a prophetic history that God has so marvelously recorded in the actual history of the life of this man. Jacob's life will basically divide up into three periods. The time when he was in the land, the time when he's out of the land, and ultimately his returning, as it is portrayed prophetically, to a time of great trouble, to coming back into the land. So as you can see, God in His wisdom has recorded the lives of these individuals, but done it in such a way that it not only supports the doctrine of the New Testament and the prophetic teaching of Scripture, but it illustrates that for us in a very unique way and one that I feel we can get hold of. I like studying the lives of individuals. So trusting the Spirit of God to show us something practical, to show us something helpful, and to help us to see the bigger prophetic picture as recorded in the life of Jacob as well. And let's look a little bit of that life as we find it here in the outset in Genesis and chapter 25. You find first the the story of Abraham and Isaac. And uh, Isaac taking Rebekah to wife and entreating the Lord for his wife because she could not have children She was barren. And the Lord heard that prayer. And he opened the womb of Rebekah, and she conceived. And as the children struggled together within her, apparently it must have been some kind of a turmoil, because it seems that in her question she says, Lord, if it be so, why am I thus? In other words, as I read that, God, if you did this, then why am I having such difficulty? God, if you're in it, why am I experiencing such difficulty? That's a question sometimes that hits us in life, isn't it? And the Lord answers to her, Two nations are in thy womb. Can you imagine? Two nations are in thy womb. Not only are you going to have twins, but what must have gone through her mind as she heard the Lord tell her, they're not just going to be two boys 
from those boys will be produced two nations. Now, I'm sure as a mother with twins, she probably felt like there were two countries inside her at times. And um, I just heard on the news about two days ago about a woman who had twins. That's not a highly unusual thing, except the twins weighed 10 pounds apiece. She could probably relate to this. (laughs) Two nations are in thy womb. But as Rebecca pondered those thoughts, not only was it said two nations, but two manner of people will come from your same womb. And the one people will be stronger than the other. And the elder shall serve the younger. And once again, the conflict that begins between Esau and Jacob is one that began in the womb. And with the declaration that the Lord said concerning their birth and their birth order, When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. Esau, or red, if you like. And he was a a hairy man. He had one of the versions reads he was like a a rug. (laughs) Came out with red carpet all over him almost. I mean, he was... A man of the earth, if you will. Jacob, on the other hand, as it says, came out, and and they called his name Jacob. And when he came out, he took hold on Esau's heel. And so they named him that, the heel catcher. Now, if you're ever running along or walking along and somebody grabs you by the heel... They trip you up. And that's sort of expressive of what the name of Jacob meant. He's going to be constantly tripping up his brother in that sense, with his scheming and his conniving and his and his planning and so on. There's something else that's here as well that we that we notice, and it's a principle that is recorded in the New Testament in the book of First Corinthians that says uh, that which is earthly is first. And then that which is spiritual follows. And as you find in the Old Testament particularly, God often bypasses the natural order. The natural birth order and the recognition of the, of the firstborn was a thing that was firmly entrenched in the life and in the practice of people of this time. But how many times do you see that order being bypassed. Whether it was with Cain and Abel, whether it was with Ishmael and Isaac, whether it was with Jacob and Esau, God says, I'm not going to do things according to the natural order. I'm going to bypass that natural order and do things according to a spiritual principle. We're not going to do things according to, if I can put it, man's way of doing things. We're going to have another rule here, if you will, another principle in effect. It would be of God's choosing. The spiritual blessing would come not because of nature or that which was natural. It wouldn't even come because of the boy's abilities. 
It would be by God's doing, by that which was spiritual, and not purely that which was physical. Now, I'm going to make a major leap, as preachers are often prone to do, by way of application. I'm going to do that for two reasons. One, because I want to, and second, because uh, for sake of time. I won't have time to go into all of the details concerning uh, these lives, but to bring out some principles. This won't be a leap by way of what the meaning is, except in way of application. I want to say very carefully that we need to be careful when we come to the lives of both of these men. For regardless of what we make our assessment of, of their lives, we have to consider what God ultimately says. And it is an interesting thing to think that God would bless Esau, not in the same way that he blessed Jacob. God blessed Ishmael, but not in the same way that he blessed Isaac. And the Scripture, while we will notice certain flaws in Jacob's character, we want to be careful even there, because God will make an assessment later of Jacob that we have to be careful to make ourselves of a spiritual nature. But when we think of Esau as being a man of the earth, when we think of him as being the natural man, there's a verse that's found in the little postcard of, of the New Testament, the book of Jude, and it says this in Jude chapter 1, well, in Jude, in verse 19, because if you're looking for another chapter, you're not going to find it, but in Jude verse 19, it says, These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Or as one of your translations will read, uh, natural, devoid of the Spirit. That which is natural in Scripture, or as it is sometimes translated in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for instance, carnal, means to be devoid of of the Spirit. That which is fleshly does not have the Spirit of God. Sensual, in this sense, are those who operate strictly on what the flesh impulses tell them to do, rather than being controlled by God's Spirit. And I want to suggest to you that as we study the life of Esau in Scripture, he represents to us a natural man opposed to a spiritual man. Although at first it's going to be hard to distinguish between the two of them when you see their lives. God is going to have to do a work in Jacob. And that's part of what the bigger picture is. The flesh, if you will, is that which is at enmity with God. It is not brought under subjection to God's Spirit. And when you study the line of, of Esau, his descendants that came after him, let me mention a few of them that are noteworthy. Amalek, the Amalekites, inveterate enemies of the people of God. There was a man named Agag. You remember that Samuel ultimately took the sword and hacked him to pieces. There was Doeg, the Edomite who slew the priest of the Lord in the days of Saul. There was Haman in the book of Esther who sought to destroy 
the people of God. Same lineage, same descendancy. And when you come to the New Testament, you'll read about a man, a king, named Herod. And the New Testament will say in most of our translations, he was an Idumean, which means he was an Edomite, which is the same line of Esau. And you remember how he sought to destroy the king, the rightful king, even the Lord Jesus, and slew the babies in the days of the Lord Jesus. And then ultimately you'll find that with Esau, he comes to represent not just a man, but a nation. And you'll find more about him in the book of Obadiah, as Edom, that nation that came from Esau's loins, uh, was in opposition to the people of God. And the little book of Obadiah in the Old Testament will have much to say about that. And so look again in chapter 25 here when we see their character brought out before us. The first came out red all over like a hairy garment. He was a man of the field. He was a cunning, a skillful hunter. I want to say that Esau was the first real redneck. And I have scripture to bear that out. I mean, they called him Red. That was his nickname. Anybody with red hair, guess what your nickname is? Red. Unavoidable. He hunted with a bow and arrow. He shot deer with the bow and arrow. He was a man of the earth. A man of the dirt, if you will. And so... That was something we find in his character. Jacob, on the other hand, was a plain man. He stayed by mom and cooked in the house. Nothing wrong with that, but it was the difference in the character. If two brothers got in a fight, you, if you got in trouble, you weren't going to call Jacob to come help you. You wanted Esau <laughs> to back you up. And you know, one of the interesting little ironies about these two is that part of our problem with scripture if it is a problem if i can say is often we know the rest of the story jamie suggested to us and it's very difficult to do isn't it come at this thing fresh and i know that you brother as i do we struggle to come at it fresh because we have things so fixed in our mind and some of that's good god puts it there and we don't want to change it but when you know the rest of the story you want to read into it the rest of it but suppose you didn't have the rest of the story, and you just saw G Jacob and Esau here, and this whole thing about the birthright, and how uh, Jacob cheats his brother and deceives him and all the rest. I mean, and you had to pick one of these for the most noble character. I mean, your money often would be on Esau. He, in many ways, seems to be more of a noble character than Jacob. I said recently, years ago in, in Jacksonville, Florida, where we used to live in Florida, a little north of where we are now, they used to publish a uh, Christian businessman's uh, business, like a phone book, like a Yellow Pages, but only Christian businesses were in it. You know, it got to be where people would avoid that thing. <laughs> That's unfortunate, isn't it? Because they've been burnt so many times by those who were 
Christian in business. I always say, if I go, if I go to a dentist, I don't want to know if he's a believer. I want to know if he's good with the drill. <laughs> I'd rather have a good, unbelieving dentist than a believer who's lousy with the drill, you know. <laughs> Amen. But uh, that ought not be the way it is. But I make it. I say that simply a little bit of hyperbole just to illustrate a point. You know, we look in the world sometimes and we see good people, moral people, and their morality and their personal ethic surpasses believers that we know. It ought not to be that way, but it is a reality, isn't it? God help us. And yet, we know their personal morality will not get them to heaven. And their personal morality will never enable them to have their sins forgiven. And we know as Christians, we, we sometimes struggle more because we're in opposition against the world. The world's against us. The devil's against us. The flesh is a battleground. And yet, when you look at the character of these men, we see that often the character of Esau seems to outshine, at least at the beginning, the character of Jacob. We know the story here. I want to suggest to you that there's one thing that really separates these two men, as I see it, particularly at the outset, and it was their appetites. It was their appetites. Jacob came in, I mean Esau came in from hunting. And uh, he came in from the field hunting. And Jacob, listen, I don't know how many of you ever hunt, but if you ever go out hunting all day and you come in and all of a sudden you smell the food before you get there and Jacob's cooking a big pot of chili. I know it was chili because it was red stuff and it had beans. So it was chili. It might have been lentil chili, but it was red with beans. And he's cooking that chili, and you've been out hunting all day long, and all of a sudden you come through the door, or near the tent, and you smell that chili. And Esau comes in and says, I'm about to, I'm faint. I'm going to pass out. Give me some of that red stuff to eat. Jacob says, have I got a deal for you? (laughs) Sell me your birthright. And Esau says, What profit is it to me, this birthright? I'm at the point to die. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage or or, or soup of lentils, and he ate. He drank, he rose up, he went his way, and the Scripture says he despised his birthright. The New Testament will say that for one morsel of meat, Esau sold his birthright. Now, there was one problem with the birthright. The birthright contained a number of elements. It had to do with the posterity, it had to do with God's promise, the blessing of God, and all the rest. But the big hang-up with the birthright, it was all future. 
And if you've ever read the book of Genesis, it's not going to kick in until somebody kicks the bucket. And those folks lived an awful long time. And so, you know, you're weighing on the one hand, look, I'm hungry now. I want what I can get now. Or I can wait another 150 years <laughs> and hope maybe to get something then if I'm not dead before then. Esau was one who sacrificed the eternal on the altar of the immediate. Esau was a man who was more concerned with the temporary gratification of the flesh that he could get than something that was out there somewhere maybe in the future. And you say, well, that was Esau. The Lord Jesus said, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Who would sell out for that? You mean to think that there are people who would actually make a choice? You mean to tell me there are people who would actually be more concerned with self-gratification, what I can get now, how I can satisfy my flesh now, how I can fulfill my needs now, rather than make spiritual choices that God would want, even in the area of salvation? It is a major philosophy underscoring how the world functions, isn't it? This is life. Get what you can get and get the most out of it now. And I want to tell you, any lie of the devil is coated with an element of the truth. See, see when you get saved, this is life, isn't it? It's just life more abundant. But you get shortchanged by the enemy to say you're not going to ever have life unless you get what you can get now. And the only way to happiness, and the young folks that are here, whoever, however you designate yourself, you need to get a hold of this. The world will sell you the lie that the only thing ultimately that will satisfy you is if you satisfy your flesh and its needs and its impulses now. Don't live for something you can't see, something that's off in the future, something that's spiritual, metaphysical, and all that kind of a stuff. Get what you can get now. Live for you now. But as we'll see, it wasn't the right choice to make. The choice by faith is to live for God now. The choice by faith is not to put my own needs first, the satisfaction and gratification of my own flesh first but that Christ might be first in my life. Listen, I am not standing before you today to say, look, I exemplify that. <laughs> As I preach it, I know my own failures. But is this not what the Scripture says? And it is a struggle that you will face as a believer in Christ. What do you live for? Self? 
flesh, gratification, instant satisfaction, or the harder decisions in some ways of that which is spiritual. I want to say that it was their appetites that differentiated them. We can fault Jacob for what he did and how he did it, but we can't fault him for what he wanted. He wanted that which was of God. He went about it in the wrong way, I'm going to say. But what he wanted was right. And all Esau wanted was that which was temporary. And he was willing to sell the birthright promise for the future just for temporary satisfaction so may god help us as we consider the lives of these two men and may the spirit of god help us in application of these things in our own lives thank you